This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. privileges of citizenship. We're not going to actually go too deeply into that today, but I think it merits just sitting with that for a minute. So, today, uh, this last week, I traveled yet again to Portland and met with a group of clergy. We're um, taking a training about uh, multiplication of ministries, how to sort of build ministries up and encourage people to um, learn from each other. Um, And as we were coming back, we had a kind of a conversation, and I sort of, what were we talking about during Lent? And I said, well, we were talking about conversion. And this clergy person was shocked and surprised. Conversion? Are you kidding me? Uh, we, we don't talk about that. I'm like, we're Methodists. What are you talking about? Conversion is like our DNA. Um, but conversion for this person was part of the laundry list of mean church words that we have spent so many years flinging at each other that they have long stopped being life-giving and they have started being terrifying and off-putting to people, especially people outside the church that we're trying to talk about good news with. So we want to bring some good news to people. And to my ears, the word conversion has a lot of really good things about it. But to somebody's ears who may not have heard the word the way I have heard it, it might feel a lot different. So the challenge is, for me, that those people can't have that word. The people who ruin that word can't have it. It's a perfectly good word. It's a wonderful word. It speaks to transforming with transformation. That's what that word means. And frankly, today, in our modern culture, the word transformation gets used for everything. It ceased to really have any meaning itself, right? I think even like the Dove commercials, they transform your skin. So, you know, I got to compete with Dove on a Sunday morning. So let's see if we can reclaim this word a little bit and understand a little bit of what it means, what it really means, and not, not what its meanness is. So, and I'm just going to go through this so very short. It's not, not a long etymological conversation. So there's two words here that I want to pull out, repentance and conversion. And in digging this out, I realized that I often conflate these two, and they really shouldn't. I'm going to change my ways. So repentance has the, both of them have this thought of sort of turning around and changing something. But repentance adds this piece of sort of the penal system, a regret, punishment, Repentance is a guilt, a shame, a recognition that you have done wrong or uh, by others, a recognition by others that you have done wrong and you're going to change your ways. So it's a behavior shift. It's a righteousness shift. You have not been behaving in the right way. And so to repent 
you are going to stop doing that terrible thing you were doing. So if you always wake up in the morning and hit your sister on the way to breakfast, sooner or later, mom's going to show up or dad's going to show up or grandma's going to show up and suggest maybe that isn't going to happen anymore. And hopefully what they'll get, at least my children were pretty, pretty horrified when someone actually discovered that the things they were doing, like, Mom knew about that, and once somebody else knows about it, you feel that sense of shame. And either you lash out angrily, well, my sister always jumps into the breakfast room first and steals the best cereal, but you can kind of get to the bottom of it. Conversion is different than that. Conversion isn't just about changing behavior. Conversion is about changing, transforming the very nature of what you are. It goes deeper, much, much deeper. It means to be so changed that you literally turn fully around, that nothing is the same again. This is what's called the validation at the end of any movie. You go through a movie and the, there's, a, there's a person who is living their life, da, 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 and then something happens to them. They're on a ship, they're a boat captain, the ship crashes, they're in big trouble. They go through a bunch of try-fail cycles as they're on the raft trying to get to shore. And on the raft, they have vision experiences, and they arrive on shore a different person than they ever were. And you know that they are totally changed because they don't go back to sailing ships ever again. Instead, they, be, they enroll in nursing school and decide they're going to help people with injuries that they had sustained, that it changed them. Conversion changes you. So we've been talking about um, Paul. And so I was curious. I threw a, a... Now, this was interesting. So now I didn't... What, what word did you Google, Barrett? She Googled spiritual turnaround. She got this love. Look at this. Isn't this lovely? She got these lovely turning circles. Because I think the truth is when we do transformative change, right, it's not... We're studying Katherine Gerritsen, and one of her concerns is, how do you make it stick? When you've really come face-to-face -face with God for the first time, like say you're in a Methodist prayer group, and my goodness, God shows up, and boy, you didn't expect that. And you feel that nudge and that call deep within you that really there's something better, that you, you should be doing something a little differently and a little better. We kind of spin around a bit, figuring out what that is. And sometimes we just give up. And other times we double down. Paul, I googled the word conversion because I'm a dork, I guess, a, a word nerd, and this is what I got. Isn't that funny? So obviously, conversion has a lot of definitions. To convert something from liters into gallons, um, you, you are changing the volume of liquid, and conversion is, uh, of course, one of our sturdy, hard science words that we use all the time. So it has a lot of applications. I'm going to talk about the spiritual application, though, but I thought this was cool, especially since it's a metric chart, right? How many of us are always Googling metric conversion charts? Yeah, I know I am. I'm like, wait, what was that again? Millimeter. It's really little, but how many inches? All right, so the next, the next slide. So 
the idea of how we imagine what conversion looks like is very centered to our teachings, our place in life, who we are, what we're taught to believe. And I like sometimes to break down what images offer us to, to get a sense of what we're looking at. So this guy is all alone. Do you notice that? There's nobody with him. Even though the story of Paul, was he alone? Not at all. Nope. Um, and was he, looks like he's in the middle of the grass. There's like a grassy patch, giving it all the more sense that he is off alone by himself, right? And, um, and he's, he's fallen down and pushing away. Look at him, those fingers in the front just clawing. And the fingers at the back sort of clawing. He's grimacing. This is, this is not a comfortable experience for this person. And, um, and we, are, we are spinning the myth here that of sort of the, the individual alone with God, as if God never happens in communities. This happens a lot. We have this individual thing. We can make an idol of this. Other times it's awesome because you have anybody off, gone off by themselves just to sort of contemplate God or... Or when it's your, you're alone somewhere, that's where you sort of feel this sort of bigness beyond you. So it has, it has some benefits too, but I always get a little cautious around some of these depictions. Next one. I love this one. <laughs> it's like he's begging, please, or time out. Does that look like the time out sign to anybody else? Right? Like, time out, time out. I mean, when God comes at you, you better believe you might be calling for timeout, right? God is really big. It's really more than we can handle. We hear in the Old Testament that we literally fall on our faces. That's, that's what it's, it's a prayer thing. We're, we're showing reverence and respect and that God has the honor and that we're nothing. But, um, but here we go. This is, this is timeout. Timeout! Whatever's going on. Okay, next, next slide. So this is... <laughs> Remember I talked about the difference between repentance and conversion? This looks a lot like repent, a call for repentance rather than a call for conversion. Do you see the hand of Jesus up there? See that pointing finger? Shaking that pointing finger at Paul. Like, Paul. And look, what are the other dudes doing? There are other dudes. Running. They're running for it. Yeah, they really are. They are not sticking around. Um, I think they're dressed, what, about 13th century, would we say? Um, and Paul is not all the way on the ground. He's got his hand raised. His, he can actually look at God here as opposed to um, the guy that we saw first who, who couldn't even look. He's got his hand raised. All right, next one. Okay, so this is Jesus is really coming at him now. This is Jesus, and Jesus got some, you know, baby angels with him there. Um, and what about the companions? I think they're still running for it. And we have a horse. A horse has appeared. Technically, there was a horse in one of the earlier ones, but it's just the reins, and you only see the reins. So, the, where did the horses come from? They're not scriptural. Could he have ridden a horse? Well, maybe. This is back to all these maybe could have happens in the stories. We get pieces of the story, so we don't know for sure. But horses show up. Uh, a lot of uh, commenters blamed Caravaggio for that, but I'm not so sure. It's a long way from Jerusalem to Damascus. If you were really wealthy, 
You could ride a horse, and there's a lot of arguments as to how wealthy Paul was. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen. Somewhere, somebody had money, period. Especially if he was ethnically Judean. That meant that he would have been one of the provincial leaders or his family on which Roman citizenship was bestowed in order to keep peace within the empire. Now, his family could have lost that status, and he could have been still born a citizen provided their, their, because their citizenship, direct line. But more likely, with Paul's education, despite how much we want Paul to be poor, Paul was probably quite well off. So he probably could have afforded to ride a horse. But maybe he was poor. Certainly he gave up a life of riches to follow God. Certainly he did that. Next slide. Another one of Jesus coming out of the clouds. And this, I like, it's bedlam, right? Uh, everybody's going everywhere. We've got multiple people falling off horses. Um, it's an absolute, uh, it's chaos. This, this is a tremendously powerful moment where <clears throat> the heavens literally split open. And despite the fact that the stories, th there's conflict about who could see the light and who didn't, clearly everybody here can see this vision of this repelling Jesus coming out of the sky. And there, of course, is Paul at the center, slain in the spirit the Methodists would say. Next, next slide. I like this one too, a more modern sort of representation of Jesus coming out of the big clamshell. I'm really not sure what that is. Next one. So again, absolute chaos. We're trying to capture that which is really hard to talk about. That in a moment where something as big as a vision of God happens, how do you even talk about that? How do you explain it? How do you depict it? And here we see that it's absolute tumult. Paul is thrown from his horse. Is Paul even alive? We don't know. Next slide. And again, a couple of pictures of this absolute tumult. The horse itself is completely spooked by the vision. So not only are these, some of these paintings claiming that all the rest of the soldiers saw the vision, but that the horses too. Next slide. This is, again, the horse. Look at the horse. That horse sees God more than Paul. Oh, I think that they're having a conversation, I think. <laughs> and then the next one. This is a, next one is a close-up of that bottom piece. And you know what this reminded me of? Have we ever seen, I know we have, those pictures where Jesus is taken down off the cross. And he's died. And he's taken up by his friends. And that looks a lot like those I don't think it's an accident that those images have been imitated here. We are positing Paul as a Christ-like figure here. But we're definitely channeling the Christian idea of rebirth and resurrection. The very nature of Paul is being changed. He will never be the same again. 
something really big happened to him. Next slide. Right? So, surprise! Yeah. Uh, also looking directly at God, right? Um, the light, the bafflingness of it. This is a very modern image, so this would be an image you might see in a very modern contemporary church where, um, I'm not sure his eyes would have been green, but capturing that shock, that surprise, that wonder. We use the word ineffable a lot of the time, and there's, it's a terribly big, awkward word, but there's like no other word. And it just means that it's like so muddling inside your mind and your heart and your being that you don't actually have words you can use to talk about it. And next slide. We're gonna return to those beautiful circles much more calming. We don't want to stare at, unless we want to stare at that earlier image. But yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> so what is the story to date? So here we have this, this thing that has happened. And actually, let's pause for a moment. And just imagine, how would you depict this? Think about it. You're the painter now. You have the brush or the pen and ink or whatever it is, your medium pastels, how are you going to depict this moment where Paul is such a mean guy, completely obsessed in his own anger and zealotry, and he has stopped, literally stopped in his tracks. And God pours in. So, the story continues from there. Paul goes into Damascus where he's cared for by the Christ believers there. And he, he can't go to Jerusalem and tries to head that direction. That's just not going to work. He, his reputation, his hatefulness, he has betrayed everybody. He has betrayed the Christ believers by torturing and arresting them. And he has betrayed the righteous in Jerusalem by now becoming a Christ believer. He goes to Arabia for three years. He comes back. Still doesn't go that well in Jerusalem. Peter's a little bit of an ally. James seems to be an ally, but everything else is kind of a no-go. And it's more clear than ever that that street called Straight that shows up in that very first vision more than ever becomes the language of the Spirit telling him that he will travel the Roman roads to spread the good news. And he goes out into the Gentile world. This becomes a flashpoint of frustration. Remember, sometimes in our histories, our recent histories, um, Christians like to denigrate Jews. It just happens, and I'm not going to defend it. I'm, I'm not going to... I, I hope nobody would think that I'm def, I would ever defend it. It, it, it. The reality is that we are all Jews, not just Jesus. Like sometimes say, well, Jesus was a Jew. Yes, and so are we. We are actually brethren. 
we are Christ-believing branch of the Judean people. We are adopted rather than born. And for some folks who celebrate Judaism, they wouldn't recognize us as that. So I'm not going to get into any of the politics from my perspective. Yeah, it's dangerous. Even now I'm feeling, uh uh-oh, I'm stepping in danger territory. Though it's important to believe that in this moment, there are only sects of Judaism. There is not Christianity as it came to be understood later, and especially as it became to be used as a divider between Christians and Jews. So I guess I'm not going to argue with somebody who says to me, hey, you're denigrating the Hasidic Jewish groups who don't want to, who don't recognize that, or maybe they do, I don't know. But from my end of it, from my part, what I see from history, what I see from relationships is that we all go back to Genesis 1. And when you all share Genesis 1, that makes you brothers, sisters, siblings, period. And I think it's really important that we understand that because of the way we persecute each other. So when I start talking about all the factions and all the fighting that's going on in Jerusalem among the Judeans, I'm not talking about somebody other than myself. I'm not looking at them and saying, oh, those dumb Judeans. Or isn't it better now that Paul and Christianity got their act together? We are them. That is us. We are we. That's my history, my cousins, my great-grandparents in faith. But the truth is, it's a mess. And they, there can't be decisions made. Was it righteousness? When you go out and you, and you talk to uh, Gentiles, these God-fearers that hang around the temples, and sure, they want to be part of the synagogue because Judaism has a lot to offer, but you know, they're not Judean. They're not circumcised. They're not clean. They don't eat the right foods. We did this. We said it wasn't okay. When we were struggling to understand what was righteousness and what part of this we were going to pick up and create as a tradition for ourselves. Paul is right in the middle of that. Paul is hated by many, not just because of his past, but because he has allowed uncircumcised believers into the synagogues. That he has allowed Christ's belief from the Judean traditions to become a conversation wider than just Judeans born in the Judean way, living within Judean law. They are not following Torah. Jerusalem is a mess at this point. There are historians who believe that it was not the Jews, the, uh, the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem. It was the Judean arguments of the time, our arguments that we were having about who was righteous and who wasn't, who was allowed to inherit the kingdom and who wasn't. Paul is hauled out, literally, so he goes back after about 17 years, this 
piece of the story happens up after about 17 years, depending on how you date it. He goes back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is not a great place. There's a lot of arguing going on, and he's he has James as an ally, and James says, look, we've got a group of people. They're going to become Nazarites. If you join them and become a Nazarite, um, they'll see how pious you are, that you really are. You're like super, it's like having super righteousness if you're a Nazarite. And that plan actually goes pretty well. They've got the, I think, four or five gentlemen up there in the temple with the rituals being performed to show that they are righteous. But towards the end of the ritual, some uh, Judeans from the diaspora, remember Judeans have gone all out into the world because they, they're uh, talented, busy, wonderful people who have gone through into the cities of the empire and created communities all over the empire. <clears throat> and there are some from uh, part of Asia and they see Paul and they're like, that's the guy. That's the guy that's been letting the people in the synagogues that aren't clean. That's the guy who's been allowing God-fearers at our tables instead of making them be ritually pure by Torah, which of course for some of them would mean that they can't belong at all. That's the guy. They literally haul him out of the temple in the middle of the sacred temple rite and begin to kill him. Centurions step in. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Things calm down for a minute, and Paul tells his story, talks about that day on the road to Damascus. He speaks in Aramaic. He's trying to show that despite the fact that he believes in Christ, he is a good Jew, righteous, a good man, despite the fact that he was a total murdering zealot, that he has been totally transformed, converted. His whole nature is changed. And they listen for a little while, and then not anymore. The soldiers literally have to whisk him out of there, and the centurion wants to know what's going on. Now, the centurion doesn't even ask questions. The, uh, Paul gets laid down for a flogging, strapped down. That makes us wonder, do you think he looked like a Roman citizen? So his ethnicity is immediately in the category of allowing him to be treated like a slave. You could torture a slave to get information in the empire, but you could not do that with a Roman citizen. They bring in literally the torture squad to interrogate him under the whip. And he says, I'm a citizen. Boy, what that didn't offer him. It buys him a little time. But the Judean high council, uh, people in the Judean community who were of yet a different sect, right? These people are having a real hard time. We, we, we are having a really hard time. They say, well, we're not eating or drinking anything until he's dead. So you better bring him to the council and let us pass judgment on him. So, this, the commanders, centurions, they bring, they bring him into the council. And what a mess. What an absolute mess. They are yelling at each other and having a, they're, they're not, they couldn't be more divided. 
And you know how it is when people divide, they just get further and further apart. And Paul sees this isn't going to go well for him, so he does something really sneaky. He diverts all that anger from him onto something else. He knows they're all fighting amongst themselves, and they've only just united to hate him. And so he basically says, so, you're just mad at me because I believe in resurrection of the body. Well, this was a theological point that turned people into steam engines. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were hot in uh, disconnect, discord. They did not agree, and there weren't just two factions, there were a few. And they start yelling at each other. It was as if, in modern day, Paul had said something like, so, how about those patriots? (laughs) Or... How about that gun control? So it's so easy to take a look at these historical stories and say, boy, look what those people did. They shouldn't have done that. Why were they fighting? How many people had to die because the people at the top couldn't stop fighting? And I would encourage us that (laughs) that's not ancient history. And we participate If we're not careful, we add to that. There's a lovely segment, um, I think it's on Jimmy, is it on Jimmy Kimmel, where they have celebrities read mean tweets? I, I don't know if you've seen that or not. But something about social media has created this, this permission to just bleh, vent in the meanest way possible. They didn't have Twitter (laughs) back then. They had armed guards. It took 500 soldiers, guard, to move Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea where he was going to meet the Romans through the Romans' courts because he was a Roman citizen. 500, that's a lot of tweeting. Conversion means that we choose love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. That we choose that all the time. Not just when we're not angry, not just when we agree with somebody, but even the people with whom we vehemently disagree. That we don't add awfulness to the world. We add love to the world and care for the world. Conversion means that our natures have so changed that we no longer crow and feel triumphant in seeing somebody hurt or seeing our side triumph. But we recognize that we are all siblings together. All of us. In the words from Galatians, you are all ch- God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Judean nor Greek, nor citizen nor non citizen. There is neither slave nor free, 
nor poor nor rich, nor is there male or female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. Now if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. How is your Christ belief transformed you? How do you draw that in every day, as Wesley would call, sanctification? You had that moment where things started spinning. That's the beginning. And then every day, deepening that loving connection with your faith, with your God, with your community, in order to be that blessing for the world that brings about the world we want, the world that has been promised, that place where we live together, renewed as siblings and all children of God. Amen. Let us just take a moment to reflect